Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Ariana. And you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana. And you'll join us for the ride. Okay, so today we have a major treat. Uh, we have on the program George Stevens Jr., who is the who is the founding director of the American Film Institute, and uh, worked on uh, his father's film, A Place in the Sun, and we were able to interview him. Yeah. Amongst many, 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 many other accolades, you ever uh, get a moment to look up uh, George Stevens Jr. He's we owe him so much, and um, you'll get a real kick out of all the work he's done. He was such a wonderful interview, and, uh, and we're so grateful to have him on the program. His uh, uh, A Place in the Sun has a 70th anniversary uh, Blu-ray, and also look out for George Stevens uh, Jr.'s book, uh, My Place in the Sun, which is coming out early next year. Um, so, Ariana, can we get a review of this episode's film? Oh, yeah, A Place in the Sun. Don't be scared that it's 70 years old. Guys, I mean, this, I I will openly admit that I sometimes have a hard time watching old black and whites because of the pacing. Um, sometimes kind of slows me down and I have to kind of retract my interest. This movie had no problems keeping my interest at all. And it's crazy because the pacing is, you know, it, it's simple. It's kind of, um, it is, I wouldn't call it slow though. It's just very intentional. And it's so captivating, the story of this guy who's basically just, um, you know, humble beginnings, ends up going to work for his uncle's company and gets himself in quite the love triangle, um, you know, with a, a night of passion with a co-worker and then a, you know, very, you know, passionate love affair that I don't even know how to explain it. I'm messing up this review right now because I'm just so wrapped up in how wonderful George Stevens Jr. was in this film. Uh, it just surprised me. It surprised me. I did not know the story was going to go. It's a bit of crime drama, some tragedy, some some possible murder. And uh, it to totally takes a direction I, I didn't quite expect it to. And um, just the acting was absolutely unbelievable. I would I'd give this one an A. Yeah. Just because the fact that it is 70 years old and it is just as riveting and alive as ever, it totally, totally deserves the grade. I was thinking about this. Uh, I feel like uh, if I were to explain the plot to to somebody... Yeah, I, help me out. <laughs> yeah, I, no, no, no. What, what I'm trying to say is if, if I were to explain the plot to somebody, I think I'd screw it up because... <laughs> um, if I were to say it out loud, I, people would say, oh, so it's like, it's like CSI or, uh, or uh, Law and Order. Um, but, but, what, but then I realized, oh, wait, they probably got that from a place in the sun, you know, <laughs> probably. I mean, like, I, I mean, maybe not directly, but uh, it feels like uh, crime dramas, uh, like, have been influenced by a place in the sun, which have then further influenced television. So, yeah. a, a, but what elevates this movie, in my opinion, uh, above just a standard crime drama is the acting, the music, the cinematography, the directing. Yeah. Uh, it, it totally elevates uh, what could be uh, potentially, if handled incorrectly, uh, standard uh, crime drama um, and love story 
um, albeit a twisted love story, it works so beautifully like a Swiss watch, you know? Yeah, yeah. It takes you on the journey, and it's not um, gratuitous in any way for any no. uh, level of the film. It just feels so natural, you know? The whole crime, when I first read, um, you know, little things that we've exchanged, and you mentioned that it was a crime drama, I remember starting to watch this film and not knowing what you were talking about. Like, how does this turn into a crime drama? It's so... It really feels like a love story of this old guy, and then the, just the journey it goes on is so purposeful and wonderful, and it's very fun to watch it all unfold. It's directed so well. Uh, I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the George Stevens, uh, who was the uh, father of our interviewee. Yes. Um, uh, he, 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 well, we all noted in the interview, uh, he's just a magnificent actor's director. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. It shows the acting in this is displayed extraordinarily well. Uh, what was your favorite performance in the film, Ariana? Oh, man. I know I'm, mine. <laughs> well, it's hard not to say Montgomery Clift because he's, Same. His, yeah. it's just so wonderful what he does with this character. And he's, it's amazing how he can be so soft-spoken and strong at the same time. You know, you don't get a sense that he lacks confidence at all, but at, there are times where you're not really sure how he views himself. And it's in a good way. It kind of shows a lot about his character and where he's at in life and, and what he's doing. And um, his performance is so wonderful. And I love the way that he bonds with Elizabeth Taylor's character. I mean, in the film, there's might be a perception that they fall in love a little quickly, uh, but it still it doesn't feel like a surprise. It all feels very, um, you know, organic the way it was intended to, and it, I just love it. I love what he did with his character. You do sympathize with him the whole time when you said that. I was like, you are so right. And I I think the reason I empathize with Montgomery Cliff's character is because from the beginning of the film, you know something is off with this guy. Yeah. Uh, just and just with his mannerisms, it just just the way he talks and the way he moves, you know something is off with this guy. Like he's not quite, like he's clearly lived a hard life, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and that uh, and that in Montgomery Cliff's performance, on top of the screenplay, on top of the of the music, on top of the sound, and on top of the cinematography, on top of all these elements, it it it. it it, sh it adds layers to his character. It adds like a whole, like, like in uh, screenwriting uh, and in acting and basically all the arts, they say, you know, uh, there's, there's more like there's the tip of the iceberg and then there's the iceberg below yeah. the uh, water, you know? Yeah. Um, and that shows in his performance. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that's what I was, I think um, when I mentioned like it not, it not being gratuitous, yeah. The whole iceberg theory is so true because you really only, you know, get to, and the writing is really the tip. The story is just the tip. The performance is just so much underneath of it. I mean, for an actor to go into a film oh, like this, with a script like this, like, yes, there's a lot to work with, but also so much of it just has to be expressed in his character and his mannerisms, like you said. Yeah. and. Holy cow, does he do a good job. Yeah. What did you leave the film with? Like, like what did you take from the film? Whew. 
I think I took from the film uh, how simple you can be and still express the truth. You know, you don't have to... I don't know. I, I, I found that sometimes when you're in a scene or you find, you know, a good chunk of dialogue, you feel like you gotta, okay, I gotta attach this movement here. Oh, it makes sense. Oh, they're feeling angry here. I should do something about that. Or, you know, you kind of... I don't know, you kind of almost want to attach to the words a little bit and let them give you cues. And something I've took taken from this film and the way that Montgomery Clift did played this role is just looking for less of something to attach yourself to and let whatever's happening in the in the scene kind of reflect on you in in the performance. Don't try to feed too much into it. You don't have to. And the directing style does that a lot, too. The way it expresses, you know, when he's coming through that archway from way behind, he gets small and he gets bigger as he enters the party room. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like his introductory to, to this society, but also kind of, I'm sure it's a bit of how he feels, too. And it just, uh, there's so much little things you can do in a film to express the truth. You don't have to be crazy about it. What Gosh, about you? What? What about you? What I take away from the film? Yeah, I want to know Andrew's answer. What I took away from the film, you, you know, it's a... Uh, gosh, that's a good question that I didn't even think was going to be thrown back at me. Yeah. But what I take away from the movie is, uh, honestly, it was Montgomery Cliff's performance. That's what I took away. Um, you know, um, one of my favorite movies uh, is uh, called The Master. And uh, it's by my favorite filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson. It has this great, it has one of the great performances by Joaquin Phoenix, who plays a uh, veteran suffering from PTSD. And I feel like Montgomery Cliff's performance is kind of a precursor to that kind of uh, naturalistic uh, and traumatized uh, kind of character. Yeah. Um, and so. And I, I personally love when films are daring enough, when art is daring enough to kind of explore uh, darkness. Yeah. That's what I kind of believe one of the purposes of art is, yeah. um, is to explore subjects that uh, we don't want to explore. It was daring for the, in the 50s to co cover subjects like abortion and uh, sex out of wedlock and... Uh, and you, you wouldn't think that this would be a good time at the movies, uh, but it's a time, it, it's so compelling. Yeah. Uh, the film is so compelling that uh, you, you can't help but uh, be in awe of the craftsmanship. Yes, yes. Compelling, and, it, it's definitely a word I'd attach to the movie. Now let's go to our interview with uh, George Stevens Jr. So before we talk about your upcoming book and A Place in the Sun, I'd like to talk about one of your previous works. Uh, I read your book, a Co Conversations with the Great Movie Makers of Hollywood's Golden Age at the American Film Institute. Uh, it can be found on Amazon, by the way. Uh, I, I, I got to say, I, uh, Mr. Stevens, I really love the book, and I feel like it should be a standard text in film schools. Reading about different filmmakers' varying perspectives on the craft of cinema is it's so fascinating and provides invaluable insights for all cinephiles. So thank you so much for writing it and conducting the interviews. It's interesting, um, a prominent director, a young director who came to the AFI to do a seminar a few years ago, 
and uh, he was going along and, and he reached down, and he picked up this book. He says, everything that you need to know about filmmaking is in the Golden Age book. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, good. <laughs> um, we all sign it. Oh, oh yeah. that, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Um, so my first question is, which filmmaker from that book did you find yourself agreeing with the most in terms of their filmmaking philosophy? Well, I guess we probably ought to start with George Stevens, senior. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, several of them. Um, uh, you know, uh, David Lean. Uh, I just love the way David Lean thinks about movies. Um, and uh, he's... He's got such a powerful sense of storytelling, and he's so specific in his films. Uh, so David Lean would get my vote. How did the insights provided by these filmmakers in your book uh, influence your own work? Well, I think I was influenced them before I did the book. Um, and there just are so many things you pick up, and, uh, and they come to you at different times. Billy Wilder saying, don't give me facts, give me emotion. You know, that's something that I said to my colleagues on the, well, in, in years we were producing the Kennedy Center Honors. Uh, and uh, this, basically it's, it's, it's the smaller observations. And uh, I, they, they are my companions. Could you go a little bit more into detail about smaller observations? What do you mean? You know, I'm trying to think of William Wyler. Um, uh, you know, I just at the moment, you know, the Pacific doesn't come to mind. Right. But, um, you know, when you're in the editing room or you're trying to solve a problem, they come to you. Yeah. Right. So like, uh, like uh, happy accidents, is that what you mean? Yeah. I know, I kind of, I know what you mean. I mean, we, I think we see it when we're watching almost any kind of film. These little moments we find that help tell the story without being super direct or showing facts, like you said. It's just kind of a, a display of connection between what's going on, and it could be sound so small. You know, it could be a line, it could be the way something looks, um, the way an actor looks at another actor, the way you know something visually is represented as somebody comes into a scene. I mean. There's so many little things that, you know, directors can do to help you build these little moments that all of a sudden you're like, oh, I I felt that little moment there. And you're totally right that it is about those, I feel like. Any film I've ever watched that really hits me, it always happens, you know, in that few seconds where the story kind of comes together. Well, the the Fellini seminar in that book, um, Andrew, uh, if I tell a story, which is a very specific one, uh, of what was in the first couple of years of the AFI conservatory. And, you know, we had, you know, young, young people, not all, some of them not that young, but anybody, they come up with a bit of rebelliousness or want to carve their own path. And something that was very much, they, they loved to talk about was improvisation. And when we would talk to them about writing a script, someone would say, you know, I'm, I'm going to improvise that, you know. So it just became a bit of a contention of we were teaching film structure with all kinds of flexibility, structure of all kinds of films, but that basically 
there is a structure to a film. And in the seminar, Fellini was there and Anthony Quinn was sitting on his right and I was sitting on his left. And uh, they were asking questions and it was a huge event. And even uh, Jack Lemmon and Billy Wilder called and said, can we come? You know, so it was a wonderful group of about 80. And Fellini was uh, insightful and charming. And uh, then the question period came and a fellow in the back, bearded fellow stood up and he said, um, Mr. Fellini, you know, I read a lot about the improvisation on your work. And uh, I wonder if you could talk to us about, you know, how you improvise in your films. And Fellini looked at Tony Quinn and he said, improvisatore? And <laughs> Quinn nodded. And, and Fellini said, oh, he said, no, he says, for me, he says, making a movie is a very scientific process. For me, making a movie is like for you Americans sending people to the moon. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and that sort of toned down for about a year, the, <laughs> the total absorption with improvisation at AFI. Fantastic. And of course, I would make the point that uh, certainly there are moments when improvisation is useful, but as right. a foundation for making a film, the preparation is uh, extremely important. Yeah, yeah. And it leaves a lot of room for those improvised moments to actually work <laughs> if it's planned. That way yeah. when something organic happens in a scene, it's not random. It's kind of all still has the purpose because of all the preparation that went into it. That's a good point, Ariana. Yeah. <laughs> something that you note in the book is that all the filmmakers interviewed at the time were men. Um, in 1974, uh, I mean, as you know, I'm just addressing the audience. Uh, in 1974, the American Film Institute started the Directing Workshop for Women. Right. Uh, I gotta say, I, I admire people, especially those with power and influence, who are able to say, you know, this situation doesn't have to be like this, and then work to change that situation. Uh, how did the Directing Workshop for Women come to be? Um, it was what, shortly after we'd started the conservatory, which at first we called the Center for Advanced Film Studies, up at Greystone, the, the mansion in Beverly Hills that was the home of the AFI uh, program for the first 12 years. <clears throat> um, and we, would, we, had, we, had, we, we did not have many women fellows, as we call them. Um, the first year we had none at all. We were gradually getting more women fellows, but uh, there was a very uh, smart philanthropist, and she came to me with, with this idea, can't you do more for women directors? This was about 1974, 73. And so from that came the idea. We had all the, we had the equipment, and so we started the directing workshop for women. Um, and one thing that enabled it was that video had, uh, had just come along and we had been making films in 35 millimeter at the conservatory. We continued to, but we started this video program and it enabled the women filmmakers, the first 12 or 14 in the first class, they would make their films on video and they would use the fellows at the center as cameramen and art directors and 
so that so it it really got them up to speed very quickly, uh, and I was very pleased to read um, uh, just last week that the Directors Guild elected Leslie Linka Glatter, who did so many of the Homeland and other wonderful um, films. She was the showrunner on Homeland. She's the new president of the Directors Guild. And uh, it noted that she got her start uh, in the directing workshop for women. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful legacy. Isn't it? Oh, I love that. I love that. And when you were creating these, you know, these wonderful institutions to help, you know, further cinema, was that always kind of a part of your priorities is trying to be as inclusive and kind of keep up with the times and continue to grow and stay relevant more, say? Was that always a, a part of your intention? Uh, it was, but I, I would uh, be misleading you if I said that we got there very quickly. Yeah. Um, it, uh, there were um, relatively few female applicants to the AFI in the first years. Yeah. Uh, and we were, uh, I, I think, preoccupied with other things and probably should have been encouraging or later on we would, uh, you know, kind of systematically uh, seek out and encourage it. It's, you know, uh, yes. Um, the, the basic answer is yes, Ariana. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's pretty clear that the intention to grow kind of obviously, you know, evolved into inclusivity because you, know, you can't, you can only grow so much if you keep your pool small. So, yeah. so that's really wonderful. You really set that up to, you know, eventually get there, even if it wasn't there in the beginning, which I think is what it's about. You know, you can't blame the times for being the times. Well, I, 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 Greystone had pretty lawns and we had... Um, uh, and then the, I think it was the first or second year of the conservatory and, uh, and the directing workshop for women. Uh, I, I was not getting a, a, a lot of praise then. It was, it, was, it was controversial. The students were rebellious. You know, they uh, it was you know, it was taxing. Let's put it that way. And one of the directing workshop for women participants um, left me a message and said she'd brought me a picnic. Would I meet her on the lawn? And I walked out and there was Candy Bergen with a beautiful picnic. She was one of the, in the first two classes of the directing workshop. So it had its rewards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doing, doing the right thing tends to do that. <laughs> Considering the fantastic writing quality uh and conversations with the great movie makers i i'm i'm really excited to read your upcoming book can you please tell us a bit about it sure um it's uh it's a for it's a memoir um and it's ambitious it's got 130 photographs um it begins with my family um and the book begins actually with my great-grandmother. Uh, her name was Georgia Woodthorpe, and she was born in San Francisco around the time of the Civil War, and she became an actress. She went to a little actor's club when she was eight, 
and she read something and that one of the great actors of the era who ran his theater uh, asked her family if he, she could come in his theater and she became a star. Um, and she uh, is the youngest Ophelia to ever do Hamlet with America's greatest Hamlet, Edwin Booth, who happened to be uh, the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. But Booth, the acting brother, the, uh, actually uh, John Wilkes was also an actor, but not as a great one. But Booth, anyway, so our theater goes back and actually she was the first uh, that started five generations of Stevens's in show business. So I write about uh, my family, my two grandparents, my father's parents were both actors in San Francisco. He ran his own theater, they traveled. My mother's mother was Alice Howell, one of the great comedians of the silent screen. Um, and so I do t talk about my family and, uh, and then I just trace my life and the book is called uh, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Where and when can people find your book? It's going to come out uh, early next year. Um, and I imagine they'll find it on Amazon, the way things work today, or, or at Book Soup, or <laughs> Politics and Prose, or Double Day. And certainly I'd be happy to come back and talk with you about it uh, in more detail when um, early next year, if you're interested. Oh. I, I, I can already say, yes, we are interested and, very and much. No, and, no, and, and Andrew, knowing that you're a good reader, um, you will have read it by then. Because <laughs> the galleys will be coming out uh, at the end of this year. And I think it's at April uh, publication date. But just to amplify a little bit, um, that I, I grew up in Hollywood. My father, of course, uh, was one of the great directors. Yeah. Um, and I worked with him, and we can talk more about that in the course of watching the films. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I also I would, started directing Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn on television when I was 25. So oh. um, it was sort of, I was following my father's path and, and it did occur to me from time to time though, uh, I wasn't too introspective, that it was likely that I could spend my entire life working to become the second best film director in my family. <laughs> oh. um, and then I worked with him and by the time of the Diary of Anne Frank, I was his associate producer and I directed all the location scenes in Amsterdam. And then a life-changing thing happened. Edward R. Murrow, who'd gone to work for President Kennedy, running the United States Information Agency that uh, came to Hollywood and by a series of coincidences we met and um, uh, he asked me to come back and run the motion picture uh, division of the United States Information Agency making documentary films uh, during the Kennedy years um, and it turned out to be uh, a just changed the direction of my life. Um, I never lived full time in Hollywood after that. 
and uh, it led to the, the American starting the American Film Institute and the Kennedy Center Honors and my other productions. So that's sort of the that's the plot of the book. <laughs> um and uh yeah it sounds like you really had a moment where you know you could have gone kept going down that path like you said and worked really hard to become the second best film director <laughs> in your family and then something shifted you realized you can share value in a different way by you know everything that you've created which is amazing how much you've done for for american films and preservation and honoring them and making sure we have access to them and i've got so much respect for that we owe you a lot of gratitude for that yes. you know my generation and future generations there's a lot we have because of you oh yes so, thank you so much yeah yeah why what was the shift why did that become so important to you to start holding on to these you know films and honoring them you know so expressively well um there are roots in that in the answer to that question yeah um when uh, the movie we're going to be talking about, A Place in the Sun, came out, um, I was about 18, I guess, um, and I went to the Academy Awards with my father wow. and my mother and my actress grandmother. Yeah. Um, my father drove the car, which tells you a little bit uh, <laughs> how different things were then, or at least in our family. Um, and uh, I sat next to him and announced the nominees. It was uh, John Houston for African Queen, William Wyler for The Desperate Hours, Vincent Minnelli for American in Paris. Wow. Uh, and I'm missing one. Uh, oh, Elia Kazan for Streetcar Named Desire. No. And George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Wow. Movies used to be something then, <laughs> or something. Um, and Joseph L. Mankiewicz presented the award. And he read out George Stevens. And my dad gave me a squeeze and went up to the stage and accepted his first Oscar. <clears throat> but driving home, with the Oscar was in the seat between us. My mother and grandmother <clears throat> were in the back seat. <clears throat> and I was perhaps a little excited, you know, it was got a, a big night and my, my father I may have thought I was a little too excited <clears throat> I remember I, he looked over at me and smiled he said you know he said we'll have a better idea of what kind of a film this is in about 25 years wow. um, and you know people didn't there were no cinematechs or DVDs I mean people weren't going to see classic films uh, but he had this thing that the important thing about a movie was the test of time yeah mm. he told me this now how directly related that is to the idea that later i would start the american film institute or do the kennedy center honors um i don't know but the, it was just really the that murrow presented this opportunity and i really weighed it my do I really want to leave my career, which is working, develop my own picture, developing the stories. Um, and I climbed up to the top of the Washington Monument on a cold winter in February, a snowy day, 
and looked out toward the Potomac and said, like the, the little boy who throws his cap over the fence, um, uh, I think I'll do it. And it turned out to be, you know, the most uh, nourishing and rewarding and productive uh, experience I might have imagined. Um, you know, I, I don't think there was ever a time like that in Washington with this uh, witty and smart uh, president um, and so many young people. You know, I, I was 29 when I showed up for work and there was uh, you know, so many other young people, Bill Moyers and Ted Sorensen and Dick Goodwin and, uh, you know, the new frontier. Uh, and then Murrow was one of the great figures in American life. And, and President Kennedy was uh, uh, just a extraordinary figure. And Jackie. Um, it, 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 so it was a great thing for me that I did it. Oh, yeah. And we all benefited from it yeah. and continue to benefit from it. Now let's transition to a place in the sun. Uh, before World War II. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I sure hope so. Um, before World War II, uh, your father is noted as having directed movies like Swing Time, a Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire musical. After World War II, when he served in the military, uh, he made it movies like A Place in the Sun. Do you think his experiences in the war changed him? They did, yes. I mean, he, um, he was away at war for three years. He saw one movie during those three years. He had it, uh, General Eisenhower gave him the most important assignment of his life, um, which was to organize the the photography uh, for D-Day and on through the um, end of the war in Europe. Um, and that he saw, he's, as he said, I saw things, saw men, at, uh, saw people at their best and at their worst. Um, they had, I had a seat on the 50 yard line. Um, and the most searing experience was his unit uh, were the first people into Dachau. And they, and he arrived there as a chronicler of the war. And that day he became a gatherer of evidence because uh, he and others anticipated that someday people would want to say that this never happened. And the footage uh, that uh, they shot at Dachau, uh, he later made a film for the war, war crimes trials of the German leaders and the German generals. And with that, that and other concentration camp footage was shown. Uh, so yes, he, he, he came back, but he, he you know, in, before the war, he made, you know, the greatest comedies, um, you know, the more the merrier, uh, Alice Adams, which had humor, the talk of the town, Penny's Serenade, you know, just the brightest 
um, you know, that, uh, and he had not lost his sense of humor when he came back. It's just that his agenda, he was supposed to make a comedy with Ingrid Bergman, he and Frank Capra and William Wyler had set up Liberty Films, first independent company of directors. And uh, uh, Capra made It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and Ingrid Bergman wanted to do a picture with dad and they were working on a script. And he went back to see her um, and uh, said, I'll, I'll work on the script on the train going east and I'll fix it. And, and then he met her after the theater. She was, at, she was in a play and went to the 21 Club. And she says, how dad ordered a drink. And she said, how's our little comedy coming? And he says, Ingrid, I'm sorry to tell you, there is no little comedy. Uh, and he, and he just, he, he I, you know, I, he never told me why, but I think, it, you know, it just felt, felt awfully light for him to be doing coming back to the war. It's not that he wasn't as funny as he was and he did. I remember Mama, which has some of the hilarious scenes, but it was about San Francisco and going back to his youth. So he, uh, you know, he, he was a different person. I should say before the war, Andrew, um, when he was, one of the reasons he left RKO is he wanted to make uh, the book that Stanley Kubrick later made of the, in Paris, the generals, with Kirk Douglas. Pass it to glory. Yeah. And he wanted to make that. And wow. and uh, RKO didn't, didn't want to do it. So he had this period of theater and drama in the background. So it was not a total shift for him to make something like A Place in the Sun. I see. But that's a rather exhaustive answer to your precise question. <laughs> and it's a beautiful answer to my precise question. Um, Absolutely. Do, do you feel as though that um, those experiences influenced his work that we see on the screen? Yes. No question. How so? A rather lofty way of putting it was that he, he was concerned with the human condition. Yeah. Um, and not in a totally lighthearted way. Right. And I can, and, and, and you know, the Montgomery, he, he, and, and America, I mean, A Place in the Sun is based on Theodore Dreiser's famous novel of the era, of the turn of the century, I believe, early 20th century, um, An American Tragedy. Uh, and he adapted it and the the young man became a world war ii veteran not not much is said about it but he's got a leather jacket and it's you know and he's uh trying to find his way in the world montgomery cliff's character uh, the Mon montgomery cliff character uh and then just the the themes are Deep. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what was your role in the making of A Place in the Sun? Well, let's say um, a minor role. Huh? But okay. 
but, but in terms of what we're talking about, um, uh, it's worth mentioning. Uh, I had just graduated from high school, a Harvard school, which is now Harvard Westlake School in Los Angeles. And um, I was going on to Occidental College, which only became famous long after I'd left when Barack Obama was revealed to have gone there. Uh, but it's a, a small college outside Los Angeles, in the, in the environs of Los Angeles. And uh, I didn't have anything to do that summer. So my father gave me two jobs. Um, one was to take Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy and, and do albums break down the whole story with every character, every situation um, for him to use in the writing of the screenplay. Um, now, a, a slight deviation. The other was to read books and scripts that came uh, from the studio to where we were working at our, where we lived in the valley. Um, and so, and, and most of these were for a 17-year-old kind of tedious, uh, sappy love stories, um, you know, nothing that was, you know, and, and I wasn't a, a great intellect, uh, but I did one afternoon see a little book and I read it in the afternoon and went over to see dad uh, that night and he was in bed reading. And I walked in and said, hey, you know, God, I, I, I said, I've read this story. I think it's really a good story. Uh, and, and, and you ought to read it. And he kind of put down his paper and he looked at me and said, uh, why don't you tell me the story? Mm. And, you know, I, of course, I didn't realize, think of it at the time, but I think he was letting me figure out whether I wanted to be in this racket mm. and had any, had any talent for it. So I then took a deep breath and I started pacing around his bed, telling him the story of Shane, Jack Schaefer's novel. Wow. Um, so that was my summer of 1949, uh, which was my introduction to A Place in the Sun. Yeah. And I remember during that summer, Montgomery Cliff came by the house and I remember meeting him. He had a car with a, a convertible with a torn top and Monty was you know, in Los Angeles from the actor's studio, uh, sort of demonstrating his indifference to uh, to, to uh, riches and fine things. But he was a spectacular looking, uh, gifted man. Yeah, he's really wonderful in this film. I mean, just un unbelievable how, how well he takes you through the story without overworking. You know, it's just so simple and intense at the same time. I loved it. It's completely captivating. It surprised me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It stands the test of time. I mean, you know, he oh, said, yeah. what, what kind of a picture this is going to be in 25 years? Um, what if he'd said, what kind of a picture this is going to be in 70 years? Yeah. Right. <laughs> we, we know. You know. And, you know, it, it's one of those... I had to have this um, just, I don't know if you've seen um, Mark Harris's biography of Mike Nichols, um, 
it's 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 a fine book and it's um and uh in it in page early in the book he talks about mike going to he had you know been the wonderkind of the theater the you know the comedy in chicago with elaine may then elaine may on broadway then directing on broadway and suddenly he's going to make a movie called who's afraid of virginia wolf and with, with elizabeth taylor and richard burton and i i heard him interviewed um and, and someone said well you've never been on a sound stage to in a professional capacity um how did you prepare yourself to direct a movie with these big stars that i think have won the academy award and there he did um and he, he said uh I watched a place in the sun 50 times. And in, in this book, it's worth noting um, that Nichols was now old enough to appreciate technique and he was gripped by the filmmaking as he was by the story. It was Stevens deeply considered visual and structural sense, his way of framing shots, of staging action, of positioning, and directing his cast and of letting scenes unfold slowly yeah. that kept Nichols coming back. Throughout his life, A Place in the Sun would be the movie he would mine for inspiration. It was his core text when he prepared to direct Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And the length of each shot and the stillness of Stevens' camera strongly influenced his approach to the graduate. There was also the point of instruction in which in later years, he would send novice directors telling them, watch it 25 times. When you're done, let's talk. <laughs> by, his own count, by his own count, he viewed the picture 150 times, many of them the year after it opened. It really got to me like nothing else had. He said. Wow. Filmmakers beget filmmakers. That's yeah. that's what I hear. Isn't that, <laughs> that's that's no. fantastic. If I may go back to Montgomery Cliff for just a moment. Yes. Um, and you can absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like, like I've written a few scripts, um, and from my experience, I, I don't think, like the way Montgomery Cliff plays the role I don't think that could have been written on the page like the mannerisms the tics the throughout the entirety of the film I empathize with him even as his character makes horrible decisions how did your father and Montgomery Clift work together to craft his performance um, <clears throat> I mean am I wrong by the way about the script in this particular picture I mean dad occasionally you know would improvise to fix up a scene, certainly in his early comedies. <clears throat> but this script was very much the, a written script. Dad did some work on it during the film. Uh, the scene, Come to Mama, was the line that Dad <clears throat> put in. Um, but Monty a, was a very good actor. And, oh, uh, yeah. and he was um, a bit, you know, he's complicated as a man. Um, 
and he was working with an actress who had never done a drama, really. Um, and she was very prepared. And of course, dad was very good with actors. Um, I actually in the book, I write about going to the set. And this is not going to be as precise to your point, Andrew, but it relates to it. Um, and I, I was in college at Occidental, and I went over before lunch to watch them shoot in the morning. And they were doing a new scene. And uh, Dad always liked to give the actors room. So he had the crew back up, and, you know, and he just uh, talked to the actors. And then he said to uh, Monty, why don't you, you go in and, uh, and just find a place there at the pool table, you know. And then Elizabeth, you, you look for a place where you're comfortable. And so they, um, and they worked on the scene. Um, and they ran through it with the script clerk there to give them cues if they were having trouble with their lines. It took a while and they finished and uh, dad said, all right. He said, good. He said, let's do it again. And so they went and they did it, you know, and uh, you know, yeah, he said, all right. He said, that's, that's, that's good. Said, let's just do it again. And so they went and, and they did it, you know, and then afterwards, Monty came over and he said, George, you know, very intense. He said, and I forget what the question was. I wasn't in total earshot. And dad started talking and Elizabeth came up and, you know, and so then they talked and, and even in that morning, they worked out the scene and, and we were ready to shoot it after lunch. And they let the camera crew go to work. And I, we were talking, and I, I was over, I was talking with dad and I said, uh, why did you have him do it three times before you started to talk to him about um, how to do the scene? And he said, well, you know, sometimes it's good to, to let the actors understand they need some help. That, that's just one way of working with actors. And he was very protective, you know, that he, he didn't like loud sounds. He played music on the set. Um, and later, the place in the sun music he used on all his movies. You notice when there was a romantic scene or a quiet scene, he'd play that beautiful theme, yeah. you know. And you know, and it it's a defect you Ariana that 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 theme music. It does. You know, <laughs> it does. It you, takes you, you into what what's happening. On the Diary of Anne Frank, I remember, you know, often you know he 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 would just play it. And it's like a pitch pipe and all the actors would begin to feel their own emotions and they're quiet and even never, you know, sometimes people would get ready and they say, okay, and the assistant director would yell out quiet, you know, or, you know, uh, ring a loud bell. Um, and dad never wanted that. He didn't want to get them all in this very tuned to themselves and their scene and then have a loud bell ring or somebody hollers or he would always and then he would he just signaled to bill meller to roll the camera and he'd say all right action you know and, but, but again Ari, you know that that's the the things people learn um i don't know where he learned it he grew up on the stage watching his his parents act. Um, and I'll just tell you a brief story. We'll come back 
to a place in the sun. Uh, okay. But when he was a boy, it, it, his father played 500 different roles on the stage, you know, wow. Shakespeare, Dickens, uh, the, the contemporary plays of the, the early 1900s. Um, and dad, and they didn't have money for a babysitter, so the dad and his brother would be there from the time they were little boys all, on, all up to teenagers. But he remembered that he used to like to do his homework under the stage when he was little. And, and, and the play he liked the most was Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, in which his father played Sidney Carton. And I found a tape of dad being interviewed, I think it was possibly by Kevin Brownlow. And, and he talked about that experience. And he said, I would sit under the stage and do my homework and they're doing a tale of two cities and I'd wait for the end. He said, and then I put away my homework and I hear my father on the stage, hear his footsteps climbing the steps to the guillotine. And then I'd, I just could feel the audience get quiet. And then I'd hear him say, it's a far, far better thing I do than I have done or done before. It's a far better place I go to than I have. And then you hear the, hear the sound of the guillotine come down with this tremendous crack. And you could, you could, you could feel the audience breathless, you know? And, and then you hear the, the curtain unfurl and the board hit the bottom, you know, and then there's a pause and then the curtain goes up for the curtain call and then you hear the audience applaud, you know, to realize that here was a child um, hearing beautifully performed works like listening to good music. Um, so he had been around the theater and he had had this instinct with actors back to a place in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I think this is kind of a, a given on any film set is that actors need to feel safe behind the camera. Mm -hmm. They got to be able to be expressive the in themselves <laughs> yeah. and yeah, just be a part of whatever's going on. And I, I do think that it's a more so, you know, it's a team effort, but uh, it's so important for the director to kind of play parent and make that safe zone for them. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, I mean, that's such a wonderful thing. It's like, let them realize that maybe they need help. Mm -hmm. I mean, such a natural and peaceful and patient way to um, interact with actors. It definitely, mm -hmm. you know, feels instinctual. The other aspect of it is, is that you, you find out the actors have been thinking about this for three days or, or six weeks or six months. And you want to know what they you know, you, you want what they have inside of them. So those, the things, it gives him a chance to see what they do, you know, and the second time they try it and do it a little differently. And so you're learning, uh, you, you're, you're not going to miss, you know, because some directors come in and they say, oh, so, so in this scene, you're in the chair over there, you're in the sofa and you come in the door, you know, uh, and it's all, yeah. it's restricted, you know, yeah. and you want to give the actors some breathing room to uh, give you something you hadn't thought of. 
And so, and so that was kind of the secret was that he made them uh, to, to, to why he's a great actor's director is that he made them comfortable uh, and also collaborated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Back to a Place in the Sun. Incredible cinematography. Uh, beautiful. Um, uh, I believe you noted in uh, one of the documentaries on the uh, Blu-ray. Uh, which is on Amazon, by the way, uh, is that if that uh, for uh, Montgomery Cliff scene with Elizabeth Taylor, it varies between bright and lush uh, to dark and moody, such as when he's with Shelley Winters. Um, do you know how your father collaborated with M- William Meller, the cinematographer? I do know. Uh, at first, it's important to know that Captain William Meller was in Dad's and um, what became the special coverage unit that was called officially of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, but they became known as the Stevens Irregulars. And Bill Meller was a, 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 had, had a, already had a good career in Hollywood, uh, but he went in uh, to serve and was a camera, combat cameraman during the war, and, and Dad and Bill were very close. And so he asked him after the war to uh, film A Place in the Sun. Uh, and my father was one of the few directors of that era who started out as a cameraman. Um, so he brought, you know, a point of view. And, and, and he just worked together with Bill Miller and Bill and, and encouraged him to be daring, you know, with the light because he wanted a lot of it to be you know, shot with some darkness. He didn't want it to be a, you know, many of the scenes, he didn't want them to be bright and, uh, you know, and, and cheerful. Uh, and other than that, you know, they, they spoke the same language, you know, so, uh, and he respected Bill's imagination and his uh, confidence in, uh, in getting the, lighting right yes yeah. it, it shows yeah it's a beautiful film i think meller won the oscar for it yes but was there a moment uh you realized that place in the sun was a movie that would be remembered was it when you read the mike nichols interview was it when well, no i read the mike nichols interview uh very recently oh okay yeah no i mean you know it came out and uh it was uh, you got these amazing reviews and right. uh, he won the Oscar and all, all of that. There was no doubt once it came out. Huge you know, success. And then how would it stand the test of time? We keep learning more about that um, uh, as years go by. Did you have anything more to say about Place in the Sun, Mr. Stevens? Well, I, I, you know, I, think, think we've, we've, I think we've taken a good, good bite out of the apple, as it were. Okay. Um, it had a one, one, wonderful musical score. Yes. I think I was about to say to you that uh, uh, my experience when I was discovering how good a film it was, uh, it was really a pivotal experience in my life. Um, while I was at Occidental, I would take time and go over to Paramount um, while Dad was editing the film, which, in which he spent a year, as was his custom. Uh, by that time, um, 
And he, Ariane, as you're probably aware, they used to have what were called moviolas, where editors edited films. And it had a little screen about this big at the top. Yeah. And the director would stand over his shoulder and, uh, you know, they'd say, okay, take this and that. And dad never felt that that, although he'd made a lot of pictures that way, replacing the son, he built a theater at Paramount um, in the Liberty Films building. Um, and it had maybe about 10 seats, but the screen filled the fourth wall. I mean, it was, the image was up there being like the great, the great theaters today do. Um, and in the, there were two projectors. The projectionist worked all through the picture. Uh, and uh, on either side of his chair, he had a control. And on one side, he had the control to run the right projection machine. And in the other, he had control to run the left projection machine. Um, so he would put, to, to say, say, the scene on the lake where Shelley Winters drowns say he has that scene up on the right projector and we run it and these and so you're seeing it on the screen you think about it then he wants to look for other on the other reel he would have say say they're in the boat he would have all of monty's close-ups and he you know all the takes of monty's close-ups all the different sizes so when you're looking for the scene when Montgomery, where we feel he's changing his mind, that he is not going to drown her. But we think he's going to. Um, uh, he can run those. And on the big screen, he can see the perfect moment in Mighty's eyes where that is communicated. And the same with Shelley, or in the love scenes, or the any scenes, that he was able to view this thing of a size that the audience is going to see it and uh, and make choices yes. and so i learned so much in my time going over there and spending an afternoon or a saturday um, and uh, so the editing was as you look at it you can realize how carefully put together it is and creatively oh yeah it was made for the big screen, and that's why he projected it on the big screen. Right. It was unusual at the time, yes. as you noted. It was, yeah. I'm sorry, you said it took him a year to edit this film? Well, just about, yeah. That, uh, apparently, if I'm not mistaken, that was unusual for the time because the studio system was in effect. And, mm -hmm. for example, John Ford, uh, director of many Westerns, such as The Searchers, just, just to name a, one of... Mm -hmm. uh, couple dozen you know um he uh he literally uh just just for our listeners i, I know you know this mr stevens but uh yeah. he would cover up the he would cover up the camera lens when he was done with a shot and say all right that's enough and yeah. then they would just cut off the slates and he would cut in camera um so that all they had to do was cut off the ends of the film and then you bam you would have the film uh to, so to take a year to edit um what motivated your father to say Okay, uh, I'm I'm really gonna craft this. Um, was it that he he, he kept in kept in mind the test of time, and how did he get the power to do that? Well, he it, it, his entire 
career was working to um, have control of his films. In, in other words, he didn't want the studio uh, wanting a different ending. He, he had control of his films. There was the issue of, of the time. Uh, maybe it wasn't an entire year of a place in the hundred, uh, but it, it was, uh, you, you, he shoots a great deal of film and then how do you organize it into something that really works? I spent a great deal of time with him on the editing of Shane and of Giant. So I've seen this process. And Joe, Joe Mankiewicz, I quote him in my book, you know, that he said George was really uh, like, unlike any other directors I knew at the time, uh, he would accumulate all of this film and then he would make his movie in the editing room. Uh, and even, even uh, interestingly, in A Place in the Sun, uh, the, the story changed in the editing room. Um, that after uh, Alice Tripp, Shelley Winter's character, drowns, and, and then Monty's gone, gone trial, um, there was a, a big trial scene. Um, and I, they, they realized that it, that was not what was needed. And so the trial scene became a very different kind of thing in the editing room, much shorter and doing only what was needed. Um, it, was, it did not become a, a big suspense thing of whether he was going to be convicted or not be convicted. It became more revealing of his character and his own doubts about the situation. The wonderful scene at the end, you recall, where uh, the priest comes to see him in the jail. And, uh, and Akmati says something to the effect that he's confused. Um, he's not sure. And he said, George, what were you thinking of when you were in the boat with Alice? And you hear the Elizabeth Taylor theme music. And Monty says, I, 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 and, and I don't know if he even answers the question. And he said, but, but you, you realize, he realizes uh, that, uh, that he's guilty of, of something, you know? So you just talked about sound. Yeah. Sound was very important to your father, it seems like, right. in his films. Uh, so, how, okay, so it, that seems almost something that uh, was started by Orson Welles in terms of Citizen Kane, in terms of adapting, uh, like bringing sound uh, to, into an expressionistic uh, way to films in, such as in Citizen Kane. And it seems like your father took that kind of same mentality and ran with it. Am I wrong? Um, or am I wrong? <laughs> no, I, well, I think I think uh, uh, Orson magnificent use of sound in in Citizen Kane. Uh, I think you know there was others were doing it, uh, but maybe not so uh, outwardly. Um, right. uh, but uh, it is crucial in a place in the sun. Uh, 
the sound of the factory whistle going off after Monty yeah. Clift has been with Shelley Winters on that night. Um, and, the, you know, and the, the, Ariana, the complexity of telling that story, and one reason Paramount didn't want to make it, um, and it, that had to persuade them to make it, um, uh, was that the difficulty of treating this unwanted pregnancy. Um, and uh, the, in the scene where uh, Shelley comes to see the old doctor and she's not quite saying explicitly what she wants, but she wants an abortion. Yeah. You know? And then and he's very nice and he's you know, doing some other things while she's talking. And then he, he just was not for, he says, well, you'll be this and that, you'll be all right. No. And, and she said that her husband didn't have a job or something she needed. Yeah. Then he, he's one and finally just out of frustration, she says, she says to him, I'm not married. And he drops an instrument on the counter, you know, and it's, you know, the, the subtleties of sound. So there are wonderful, uh, examples in that picture oh yeah yeah they kind of they do some of the uh, you know expressing for the actors which as they should that's how it really is you don't always have to say mm -hmm. what what's happening to express what's going on in someone's mind and that was very clear so i have i, I have something that just occurred to me actually it's a, a page from my manuscript that might be it because we all kind of take you know, a place in that sun is here and we're happy for it. And uh, uh, when Frank Capra and William Wyler and my father sold Liberty Films to Paramount um, because they really weren't able to make it work in time um, for a lot of reasons. And they each had to make a number of pictures for Paramount. That was part of the deal. And Dad had been there a year and they kept not approving. He had final cut, but they wouldn't green light, as we come to say, pictures. Um, and he wanted to make Dreischer's an American tragedy, and they were reluctant. And uh, he eventually got a brilliant criminal attorney from San Francisco, Vincent Hallinan, because he felt that the Hollywood lawyers were all a little bit beholden to the studios. And he wanted him, them to know he had somebody they weren't going to be able to mess around with. And uh, so he, he, um, he laid it on the line to Paramount. He said, I will stake my professional reputation, which I have been called to do many times on my judgment of this property, a place in the sun. And the gulf between filmmaker and management was evident in Paramount Chief Henry Ginsburg's response, quote his letter. Uh, we refuse to admit that your judgment is better than that of our entire production organization, our sales department, and our New York home office executives combined. We had expected that you would be most appreciative of the time and effort expended, not only by me, but by everyone, including Paramount president, Mr. Balaban, 
in studying the, advis the advisability of proceeding with this story. And therefore you can well imagine our surprise and our chagrin when instead of being grateful, you seem resentful because we rejected this story. That's, uh, that's the studio mentality. They, right. how, how authoritative, how convinced they are that this would not be a worthwhile movie. Right. And it's certainly, if not the best, one of the three best movies these guys produced in their long careers. Right. So uh, good things don't always come easy. <laughs> no. No, no, not at all. I'm so glad they fought for it. This is a wonderful story. Yes. Um, <clears throat> sorry, just a moment. <laughs> we all got the <coughs> the cops. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew needs his vodka to keep these things going. <laughs> oh, oh no, <laughs> uh, it's a little early for me. Uh, I could keep you around for hours, but um, um, I, I I just want to say I'm so pleased to have you on the program. Um, I hope you'll come back, and um, uh, unless you have anything more to add, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Well, wonderful, and I've really enjoyed uh, being with you, Ariana and Andrew, and uh, uh, I'm glad you found some of it interesting. Oh, oh. so much of it. <laughs> so much All of, of it. it. Yeah. I'm Thank with you Andrew. So much. I'm with Andrew. Thank you so much for your time to just to come and prioritize, like, sharing with us, you know, some of your knowledge. You know, there's no way for me to know uh, what it was like to make films back then or you know, what it took to create such a film like this. And, you know, me and Andrew in the process of being, you know, stretching our creative muscles, any chance to learn from, from someone like you is greatly treasured. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to come and chat with us. Thank you. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please shoot us an email at independentcareerstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and, and uh, follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I edited this episode. My name is Aaron Gentile. This has been an independent Career Studios production. Mm -hmm.